Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walks in a month. Why? Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can check us out at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. If you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast aggregator. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And you can read my writing on tech at techuplife.com. And I am joined tonight by... What's up, Celluloid Fiends? It's Wes Clifton. I'm a writer, I'm a musician, and I am a cinema crawler. Uh, I can be followed on social media. I'm on Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, if you want to check out some of my writing, you can check me out at wdclifton.wordpress.com. It is a pleasure chatting with you about film, as always. Uh, so what all did you end up watching lately, and did you pick up any movies on uh, physical media? Yeah, so I got involved in a in a music project with uh, some of my old pals, uh, which took up part of my time. So for the first week or so after the the last episode, I wasn't watching much. But uh, well, actually, uh, when I was doing that, my friend recommended the show "What We Do in the Shadows" to me, and so I actually just binge watched the entire series of "What We Do in the Shadows." I've still never seen the movie, um, but I really thought the show was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I was a big fan of Flight of the Concords, and so this show, um, you know, some of the same people that were involved in that um, were involved in making this, and it was a very similar style of humor. Have you seen any of that? Uh, so I have not seen the show, but I did watch the movie What We Do in the Shadows, and I loved that. Did you, have you? Did you see the movie? No, I haven't. I haven't watched the movie yet. I really want to. I don't know why I never had. Like, I really like all the people involved, and I love horror movies and horror comedies. So it makes no sense that I never. It's just somehow one of those movies that I missed and never went back and caught. And then same thing with the show until my friend uh, recommended that I watch it, and I started watching it and just thought it was so funny. So uh, I just binged the whole thing over the course of like four or five days. It's not super long, obviously, but it was just really funny to me. Um, so I spent a few days watching that. And then I uh, got kind of in my Western mindset again um, for tonight's feature. And I watched a movie that I used to watch all the time when I was a kid, even though it's like one that a lot of people haven't really heard of. It's called Grey Eagle. I bought it for pretty cheap on Amazon Prime. And it's kind of a take on on John Ford's The Searchers, but I mean, you know, not in the same league as The Searchers, but it's kind of the same thing about a girl gets kidnapped by Indians and her father goes 
trying to find her and get her back. But it takes a, an interesting turn in that the um, Indian is is a heroic, you know, sort of good guy uh, character. And, uh, you know, it's it's not a flawless movie by any means, but it's one I remembered fondly from childhood. And I checked that out. And I also watched... Um, it wouldn't be a celluloid fiends if I didn't talk about Lucio Fulci. I watched one of Lucio Fulci's uh, spaghetti westerns. He made three, uh, and I'd seen Silver Saddle previously, and so I watched what most people consider his like best of his westerns, which was Four of the Apocalypse. And I got to say, that was a strange western. <laughs> it had like this weird psychedelic '60s rock. Uh, soundtrack very different than what you'd associate with like Sergio Leone uh spaghetti westerns it was just a very strange film as one would expect from Fulci so uh that was a first time watch for me and uh it was interesting I I did like it and then um I haven't picked up any movies physically but one thing I did pick up that's movie related is I picked up I found out about this uh comic book company called Ibon Press that makes kind of uh, small release, limited release uh, comic books based on Lucio Fulci films. So I bought a copy of the uh, their, the Beyond issue number one. So a comic book adaptation of Fulci's The Beyond, which is one of my favorite horror films. And it came with a... The main reason why I wanted to get it, honestly, is because it came with a CD copy of the American version of the score. Uh, I'm obsessed with Fabio Fritzi's music, who did the score for the Italian version. But when it was released in America, it was called Seven Doors of Death, and it had a totally different score. And I think this was the first release, is this company, Ibon Press, releasing it to go along with their comic book and so i bought it so i could have that and it turns out that the comic was really great so i've actually ordered a few more of their comics uh based on fulci movies and it came with um some soundtracks so one thing that's neat about that company is they have soundtracks for their comics which is crazy and uh there's a guy dave niebuhr uh who wrote some of those soundtracks for their um zombie adaptations and for bottom feeder which is one of their i think one of their original stories and those soundtracks were also just really cool so i've been really into that this week that sounds pretty sweet and i especially like that concept of having soundtracks that correspond to a comic book yeah it was a very neat idea it was a comic that was the first comic i've ever bought that came with a soundtrack and it came in a little sleeve like a vinyl record it was the comic did it was very neat so did you end up listening to the soundtrack while you read the comic? No, I actually didn't. Um, I, I might go back and reread it with the soundtrack playing in the background, but I, I just read it just sitting on the couch reading it. But it was just, it was really cool. It was a neat comic adaptation of one of my favorite horror films. So very neat. I might have to pick that one up. That sounds really unique. Yeah, uh, I didn't know if you were into comics or not. I don't know if we've ever even talked about comics. I go in and out of it, but this was pretty cool. I So I enjoy comics when I read them. Uh, I, I don't know if I could say that I'm fully into comics because I, I don't have a ton of exposure to yeah, them. Same. But uh, some, some recent comics that I have read, I read Afterlife with Archie, which is about the zombie uh, attack that hits riverdale i read the chilling oh. tales of sabrina okay which i absolutely loved there were a lot of horror movie references in both of those and so actually i think you would probably appreciate both of those comics uh i you know i've, I've read the watchmen some standard fare like that so yeah it's kind of a mix of some more uh popular comics that i've read and then some 
kind of lesser known stuff. But that's something I need to explore a bit more Uh, on the film side. So this week I ended up watching uh, the the movie that we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And once upon a time in the West. And I ended up watching the 1956 invasion of the body snatchers. Okay. So I watched both of those. Those were the only. Oh, no. I also rewatched the first John Wick film. Okay, man. Which was a that was a blast. Yeah, I loved it. I loved all those movies. I loved the first one, but for some reason, I never got around to seeing the second two. Oh, and I ended up buying recently the uh, 4K Steelbook trilogy. So I'm kind of excited to watch all of those because I, I just absolutely adored the first one. Yeah, I'll be I'll be curious to hear what you think of those. Yeah, I'm excited to take a look at the second two. And then I also I watched some Charmed this week, which okay. I started because it I, I always saw reruns on TV and there are still reruns pretty regularly on TNT, I think. Oh, wow. And, and what inspired me was that uh, there's this movie, The Craft, which I just right. absolutely love. And the TV show seemed like it was sort of similar. And in some ways, I definitely think it is. It also is different in many regards. And it reminds me a lot of the X-Files. So I think it's a really fun television series. That's cool. I've never seen that. Yeah, I've never seen that at all. And somehow in my head, I always associate it with um, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series. I don't really know why. And I... I never saw the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series. Everybody always tells me that I'm just crazy for not watching that. Apparently, it's much better than I thought it was. Uh, but I just never got around to watching it. I love the Buffy movie. Uh, but So I don't know if those shows are even similar at all. But somehow in my head, I just equate the two of them. Oh, the Buffy movie is great. I've only it. seen a handful of the Buffy TV show episodes, but I always enjoyed those. And I do think there is a, kind of a parallel between that and charmed and also again the x-files i think those three all have their differences but i think they all kind of have a lot of core similarities that they that they share you're looping me in with these x-files comparisons man (laughs) that would actually be a fun one to take a look back at would be the x-files movie i've never i've never i don't think i've ever seen the movie oh it was actually pretty good it was basically like an extended episode but more fleshed out Whereas the second X-Files movie was really terrible. And it was like an extended episode that just dragged on and on and on. An extended episode that's more fleshed out is kind of like the Law and Order movie, which I have seen multiple times. Oh, I have not seen that. Yeah, I'm I'm obsessed with Law and Order. So like I uh, I've I've seen the movie a couple times. (laughs) I like Law and Order, but I'm more of an SVU fan predominantly because I'm a huge Ice-T fan. Uh, I love his music. I love his acting. And I think he's phenomenal in that role. Yes. Have you heard any of the newest Body Count record? I have. And I actually quite enjoy it. Yes. It's like really heavy. I'm really digging it. I I like uh, Body Count a lot, too. Yeah, they're, they're a pretty good group. And now, our feature presentation. And tonight we are talking about the 1968 Western classic, Once Upon a Time in the West. 
This has a 95% critic rating and a 95% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which I feel like it's kind of unusual that you see yeah. audience and critic score that align. Yeah, right. It was very successful upon its release in Europe, but it was heavily edited by Paramount for its U.S. release and was a commercial failure in the States. Time Magazine actually named Once Upon a Time in the West as one of the 100 greatest films of all time, though. And in 2009, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally historically or aesthetically significant yep so Wes, tell us what is this movie about yeah so i was writing i I had to write up a plot description we were talking about it earlier i couldn't really it was so hard to describe what is this movie about in a short little paragraph this is what i've got when jill McBain, played by claudia cardinale arrives from the east to begin a life with her new husband and family she finds that they have been massacred Their killer, Frank, played by Henry Fonda, works for Mr. Morton, who owns the rail company that is slowly building its way through the countryside. We learn that Frank was hired to clear the McBain family out. Meanwhile, a mysterious harmonica-playing gunman, played by Charles Bronson, arrives and shoots it out with three bad men, and a bandit chieftain named Cheyenne, played by Jason Robards, escapes the law and returns to the area to lead his gang. The paths of these four characters become entwined in an epic story of greed, revenge, and the passing of the Old West. Yeah, I I would agree with what you said earlier. This is a difficult film to summarize. Yeah. And I think that's partially how it is how it's shot, kind of yeah. how the narrative structure right. goes. But yeah, I think you did a great job with that. And Thank this you. was this was a West pick. It was. So, why did you pick this film? Yeah, I kind of took a roundabout route to choosing this movie. So, as I mentioned previously when we talked about Rio Bravo, I was talking about how, you know, we mostly kept to a conversation about traditional American Westerns, but I'm also really interested in spaghetti Westerns and wanted to talk about one. And at that time, I was really jazzed because the era release of the original Django film was supposed to be finally being released. And sadly, in the time between then and now, something must have happened and that got pulled from release again. So no Django Blu-ray for me. So then I started thinking, well, I still want to do a spaghetti Western and I was going to do Uh, one of my favorites that kind of flies under the radar a little bit called The Big Gun Down that has a great Ennio Morricone score, but I found that that one was a little harder to come by on streaming services, and I wanted to make sure that our listeners would maybe not have to struggle to find it. So then it came down to one of the great Sergio Leone movies and um, decided to go with Once Upon a Time in the West. It just seemed like one that we would have a lot to talk about. It seemed like one where there was a lot going on with it. It does have that great score by Ennio Morricone, who recently passed away within the last week, uh, or maybe it was a little over a week ago. I can't remember the exact day, but uh, we did lose Ennio Morricone in his 90s. He was one of the great film composers. We love uh, movie soundtracks and movie scores here. And I mean, the movie landscape would not be the same without Ennio Morricone's music. So we wanted to dedicate this episode to Maestro Ennio Morricone and his music, and I wanted to choose a film that had a great score by the Maestro in it. Yeah, his impact will forever be felt oh, in, yes. in the cinema world. Yes. He was just absolutely legendary, very inspirational to filmmakers, composers, and even just cinephiles like us. 
and he's he's immortal now, right? I mean, there will never be a time when cinema music is not influenced by things like uh, the Ecstasy of Gold from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which is my favorite of his tracks. Like, it's just his music is just immortal and timeless. Absolutely, and not only was his prowess as a composer part of that legacy, but also just how prolific he was. Yes. And the fact that his scores, he he definitely had kind of a, a signature. Mm-hmm. You could recognize that something was a Morricone score, but even so, his scores were so unique in a lot of ways. Yeah, and he delved into a lot of genres that people don't even, people always associate him with Spaghetti Western, but you know, he did a lot of work in Giallo and other um, other genres as well. Right, because I think he composed the soundtrack to The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. That's right. He actually did the first three Argento films, I think. A Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Yeah, so I think that's one of those genres that he, you kind of forget that he, he dabbled in. And like you said, he tends to be kind of pigeonholed as, as being a Western yeah. uh, composer. But he actually... Uh, collaborated with a lot of other composers and also just worked on a lot of other genres. So yeah, just his impact will will forever be felt in the movie world. Yeah. And so you had seen this one before. Yeah. I watched it um, back when I was in, uh, in undergrad a long time ago when I, when I very first had my like Western film awakening and wanted to start watching Westerns, uh, I stuck a lot to American Westerns, but two that I remember watching in the spaghetti Western world at that time were The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West. And then I hadn't seen it again in well over a decade since since I watched it back then until watching it for this. This was actually my first watch of this movie. I had not seen this before, even though I had a DVD of it, which I picked up a while back at like a thrift store or something. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just hadn't gotten around to watching it, so I'm I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, we, it turns out we had the same DVD of it. <laughs> yeah, that that two disc yep. collector set with all yep. those special features. Yeah, I've had that forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean that uh, that's a pretty robust set. Oh, it's great. They did not skimp. I did not finish the commentary track, but there it it has I think one of the better commentary tracks. Yeah, that and, is available. And a series of three mini documentaries about the film that I found really um, eye-opening as well. Yeah, I, I didn't get to watch those before recording, but I am very excited to kind of delve into those. Yeah. Uh, so one of the one of the first things that I think really hit me while I was watching this is the pacing. Yeah, right. And so it was a little strange because. I, I love slow movies. A lot of my favorite movies are slow, slower and and uh, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, things like that. But something just felt a little weird with Once Upon a Time in the West because I got about, it was probably over halfway through, and this is a almost a three-hour movie. Right. And it's well over an hour into the film. And you still don't really know what the central plot is like you know the high level plot right which is that frank kills the mcbain family just brutally murders them and then charles bronson's character harmonica 
is on some revenge mission. So you know there's this uh, to kill Frank. So you know there's this revenge plot, and then you know that Frank wants something. But at one point, I paused it and I was like, "Did I did I like miss a scene? Did I kind of miss a big reveal?" <laughs> and I was just yeah, I was curious what you thought because it almost seemed like it, it was trying to posit the this big reveal as sort of like a mystery. When and then when it actually happened to me, it kind of seemed somewhat obvious like i didn't have it pegged exactly but it it didn't seem as shocking as i thought it would be because of the kind of build up to that well um yes and no for me so um i really liked kind of the mystery element kind of trying to piece it all together i mean it depends on which aspect of the mystery that you're talking about. I think from the moment that we see, oh, and once again, obviously, spoiler alert, we're going to give the whole thing away. But I think from the moment that you see uh, Jill kind of messing around in the in the, the McBain household and she pulls out that um, model of a train station and all that, you kind of, we're able to put it together before the before the characters in the film are able to put it together. But I liked watching their journey of trying to piece it all together, even if maybe it was a little bit easier for us as the audience seeing that. I will say I thought they did a great job with the backstory, like the slow reveal of the backstory of the character of Harmonica. I really liked that. It came to us in three distinct flashback segments, and I really thought that was uh, great. So the the mystery elements I was into, yeah. Yeah, so I I would 100% echo what you just said about Harmonica and his backstory. And to be clear, I was never bored. I never kind of felt unenthused. I just kind of felt like the narrative could have been a little bit tighter in, in some regards. At the same time, one thing I really appreciated, and this was in part kind of the narrative structure and, and the pacing, but I think more so the cinematography is just the way that even you can look at the title once upon a time in the West, it felt very sprawling Mm -hmm. and like this epic, not even just because of the runtime, but kind of the juxtaposition between these close-up shots of characters. There are a lot of kind of very close shots of, of characters faces. And then these wide panning shots that give you a ton of uh, viewing area of this, sprawling uh, Western backdrop that was just very quintessentially Western. Right. I agree. And a lot of what you're talking about, like those big panning shots and then the close-ups on people's faces, that's very trademark Sergio Leone anyway, uh, which I think is cool. But, but, you know, the thing to say about the plot, I mean, about the pacing is I 100% agree with you. And the thing that really struck me about this film, I mean, even being such a like a, a cinephile uh, the intricate amount of thought and detail that went into this movie the more i researched it was mind-blowing to me but the pacing was very slow and intentionally so and i will say that i recall being a young man watching this for the first time and it was a little too slow for me and like you said some of my favorite films are slow burns uh we were talking about before we started recording uh the house of the devil which is a very slow burn but i think is one of the best horror movies of the 21st century uh thus far and you know it's very slow but this movie is just very slow but leone did that on purpose i mean that was an intentional choice now was it a good choice bad choice i don't know that's debatable but he did it on purpose, and apparently he did it to kind of mimic the pacing of some of the old samurai movies that he loved so much. 
A lot of his work was influenced by Kurosawa and some of the old samurai movies. And so he wanted to give it a very slow, deliberate pace. Uh, so it, it was intentional. Now we can argue, you know, whether or not that was a, whether or not that helped or hurt or whether it was a little too slow, but it was intentionally done. And interestingly, the edited U.S. release actually did not fare as well right. as the yeah. European release. That's right. Which I, I thought was kind of fascinating. Uh, but yeah, again, I, I never I never felt like I was bored. I just at some points was kind of confused at why, you know, this big reveal had not been announced earlier. Yeah. Uh, but and and one thread that I think really holds the film together was kind of the railroad. Yes, right. Which you see at the beginning. And it's it's just very clear that, right, the train, the railroad is very central to the plot of this film. Right. And then it just kind of continually shows up throughout the movie. Uh, first in that opening sequence, which I want to talk about. And then kind of, like you said, at the McBain homestead sweetwater <laughs> there is like this wooden train toy and there's like a little model of a train station and then of course in the in the final shot as well right with kind of building the railroad and it's one of those things that each time it repeats there's a bit of a different perspective yeah and it's that happens with a few different things including like you said harmonica's backstory and then also various character interactions like Cheyenne's uh, interaction initially with harmonica there's sort of a parallel of that later on, and it's kind of a completely different take on it. Uh, so I liked a lot of that kind of repetition and kind of providing a different perspective each time something is repeated. Yeah, and and the railroad is one of a number of of like run, uh, motifs that run through the whole film and connect the whole thing together. The the railroad is one. I also would say and we can get into a discussion about the themes of the movie at, at some point, but I also would say that the train is kind of symbolic of one of what I thought was the main underlying themes behind the film which was uh the the that's actually a pretty common theme in westerns the uh dichotomy between progress and the passing of the old west which i thought was one of the big themes of this movie but also there's a water motif that runs throughout uh, a lot of scenes where water is sort of a linking thing and i noticed uh, a, a clock theme throughout like there's a lot of appearances of clocks throughout the movie as well which i thought was interesting especially going with the the title of the film once upon a time in the west i definitely thought that like you said there was a kind of running theme of kind of progress and yeah. and kind of comparing that to the old west because uh, this was totally in a lot of ways a snapshot of something that would happen in the west not necessarily something that would have actually happened but something that you would at least associate through pop culture with the old west right uh, and i do i really want to talk about that opening scene oh yeah so, you know what it reminded me of? The opening shot from Rio Bravo. Or no, yeah. um, Rio Bravo from uh, High Noon. Okay, yeah. Well, actually, so that was one of the things in the commentary tracks and the the um, the uh, documentaries that they definitely mentioned as intentional was that it the mirroring of High Noon was intentionally done there. Yeah, so 100% could see that. 
But what you said yeah. about Rio Bravo also, I, I was reminded of Rio Bravo just because of the use of silence. Yes. And that is another very uh, Sergio Leone yeah. trope. Yeah. Because I remember the first time I watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, I was like, hey, do I have this muted? Uh, there, <laughs> there's been a, a lot of runtime with no dialogue. Yeah. Um, but what's cool about the opening for Once Upon a Time in the West is kind of the way that the music is incorporated. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of kind of ambient noises. Yes. Yeah. It's 21 minutes into the film before an actual piece of, of music starts to play. Yeah, which was a very unusual choice, but it works quite well the very way well. that kind of the train itself provides some sort of music and there's this windmill at the beginning. Yes. And then one of my favorite parts was actually when harmonica is introduced. Right. And you hear this harmonica and I was thinking, okay, that's got to be the score. And then you look and the train kind of keeps rolling down the tracks and reveals harmonica. And he's standing there playing a harmonica. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the way he always announces his entrance with the harmonica. Yeah, and I I loved that. I I adored how it kind of kept happening throughout the film. So cool, yeah. And the opening scene of this movie is so striking to me. And, you know, I got to be honest, over the course of the many years since I saw this movie last, um, the opening scene was was really one of the only things that I remembered about it was this was this opening scene. These three. So what what we see at the opening is these three bad men in these long uh, trench coats, these long dusters coming up to this little train station in the middle of nowhere. And they kind of threaten the train, uh, the, the, what do you call the ticket master there? And they uh, are waiting for something. And then after a very long time of them waiting with no music, and like you said, only these amplified sounds, uh, the train pulls up and they, they kind of, face off against the train expecting we assume someone to get off and no one does and then the train pulls away and they start to leave and then they hear that harmonica play and they whirl back around and there's charles bronson and he's going to give the you know the first uh the first line of the film which i believe is did you bring a horse for me uh and you get that great exchange where they say uh looks like we're one short and he says nope you brought two too many uh, it's the first of uh, of many great little hard boiled bits of dialogue, um, but the the thing about that scene is, like we said, there's no real music. It's it's the train and the rusty windmill mill and the buzzing of a fly and water dropping on one of the guys' hats while they wait around for the train, and and we feel kind of what they're feeling, which is the sense of waiting around for something big to happen. Uh, the interesting story about that is that supposedly, um, they had a piece of music that was written for that and it just, they never could make it work. So they pulled it out of the film and and they didn't use it, but Morricone had went to this avant-garde concert. Uh, and I don't remember the name of the performer, but it was this idea that anything in the right context can be music. Uh, and he went to this concert in a concert hall where somebody apparently played a metal ladder. And that was what it was. They made sounds on a metal ladder, which seems kind of out there to me. I don't know if I would have enjoyed that, but that's what gave him the idea of using non-musical sounds as the score for a lot of this movie. 
And I really loved that experimental vibe that he gave to the yeah. soundtrack. It was cool. And I'm not sure if it would have worked as well if the film itself had not been so concretely Western. Yes. I think if the if the visuals had been more experimental, I don't know if it would have paired as well. But I think re- kind of tying the film to something very uh, familiar yeah. allowed his avant-garde soundtrack to really thrive. Right. Yeah, I think so too. And and then also, you know, he he blends it in with this great, you know, pretty much a, a traditional Morricone score in places as well, where there's this, you know, there's the like slightly overdriven guitar and and all those uh, those sounds that we've kind of come to associate uh, with uh, with Morricone and Leone movies, but mixed in with all this amplified sound that carries out really throughout the movie. There's there's places where the sounds themselves become so important. Yeah, and I liked the way that it was very seamless. Even though you could tell kind of when certain parts of the score were more out there, it never felt like a harsh transition from the more stereotypical Western scores that you would kind of associate with the spaghetti Western genre. Yeah. And I also think the imagery was so striking in that opening scene. Uh, just the image of those three guys and their their uh, khaki colored, uh, tan colored dusters standing in front of that train and then facing off against Morricone has just that's one of the scenes from westerns that's just been like seared into my mind over the years. I, I, it's just to me one of the most iconic scenes that I can think of in a western. Just really cool. And uh, then of course you get the, this great gunfight that's over in a just in a flash. After we've waited that long, 12 minutes for it to build up, it's over like nothing. Yeah, it was just so quick. And there it's something like the, I think the opening credits conclude after 10 minutes and, and it's, uh, you know, this 12 minute kind of build up. And then the gunfight itself is just over in a matter of seconds. In a flash. Yeah, but uh, but I, I liked that kind of subversion quite a bit. And I thought it was one of the more striking and immersive openings to any film right off the bat you understand very concretely through visuals uh kind of the body language of the three villains in that scene all right these are bad guys and i liked the way that it was told there is a little bit of dialogue where they kind of threaten the uh ticket master at the train station you're right yeah, but it's it's very brief. And then you just kind of see these menacing characters and they're sitting there waiting for someone to show up who you kind of assume is going to be a hero. Yeah. And the whole time they're keeping themselves occupied. One of them is kind of cracking his knuckles. Mm-hmm. One of them is trying to eat, eat a fly. And the other one is just letting basically rusty water drip onto his hat and then drinks it. Yeah, and you know the thing about that fly is apparently in order to get that to work, uh, they put honey on the actor's, uh, the actor was Jack Elam, and they put honey on his lips so that the fly would be attracted to his mouth and keep buzzing around. And it worked really well, which I'm sure was kind of difficult to pull off. Yeah. From what I read, they had a jar of flies, and they would just have one out at a time until they could get the desired effect. Right. Which is kind of impressive because you can't really give direction to a fly. Yeah, there's no there's no fly trainers that I know of. No, and with other animals, 
you know, you can train a dog or a, or a horse or something like that, but nope, you can't really train a fly. Yeah. Uh, so I loved that. And then kind of following that up is another really striking scene. Yeah. And that is when Frank shows up at the McBain homestead and he murders this entire family. Yeah. In, just in cold blood, including the young son. Yeah. Yeah, all the children. Yeah, the little girl. Yeah, uh, and she so she was a little bit older, right? She's and I think yeah. the I think the really striking part was when he kills the the really little kid. Yeah, because right. you're not really sure what the ages are, but little Timmy. Yeah, poor little poor little Timmy. So he he kills uh, he kills the the father and he kills the two older children, and then little Timmy comes out and hasn't. He did not kind of witness the murder, but obviously he knows what happened. And then one of Frank's minions says, what are you going to do with the little one, Frank? And Frank's like, well, now that he knows my name and he shoots him. And I I liked the way that was shot because you don't actually see him get shot. It's just kind of this close up of of Frank's eyes and then then the gun itself. Yeah. Apparently they... um... They even cut that a little bit more for the original U.S. release because people just couldn't. They said people just they just didn't think the American audience was ready for Henry Fonda to shoot a child, so they cut it out to leave it make it even more ambiguous. Apparently, uh, initially, because they just thought that the that people wouldn't accept that. And then you compare that to the I think it was the Japanese release of Mac and Me, which is a family friendly film, and you see a kid get shot. Yikes! Yeah. Uh, but that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that's why they, they they cut it even more because of that. And that's something that I think you had even noted in the in the trivia was about was about how interesting the casting of Henry Fonda in this role was. Right, because there is not any doubt that he is a villain. Yeah, and he's a great villain in this. But that is not the image that Henry Fonda had um, portrayed to the American public prior. Uh, to this you know he had been and i'm I'm not super well versed on his filmography i actually mostly know him from this but just kind of doing some research you know he had been uh wyatt earp in my darling clementine and he had been uh young abraham lincoln in the movie young mr lincoln uh both john ford films which by the way the amount of references to john ford films in this movie like in researching this movie is staggering to me it was the amount of detail that went into calling back to traditional Westerns and then turning them on their heads was insane to me. There's so many references to the searchers and uh, well, really the searchers is a big one and, and stagecoach and things like that, that it was wild. But um, Henry Fonda had been known mostly for heroic roles. But interestingly, I thought the casting of Henry Fonda in that role and across the board was ridiculously well done i agree um i thought the thing that was interesting was apparently henry fonda at first was a little hesitant to take the role he he didn't he didn't know how that would go over for his image either uh and apparently sergio leone flew in and um and met with him and kind of just said you know described to him and said picture this you know the camera shows the gunman and shows him shooting a child and then the camera pans up to the gunman's face and then it's Henry Fonda, Henry Fonda, like a, a surprise. Uh, and Henry Fonda really liked the idea of that, you know, that shock to the audience. Um, 
And also another thing I thought was interesting was that even then Henry Fonda still didn't quite get it. And he showed up on set and he'd grown like a menacing beard and he'd put brown contacts in so that to cover up his like bright blue eyes. And Leone was immediately like, no, get rid of all that. Like he wanted him to still have the same almost heroic look, but then be contrasted against his just totally villainous persona in this movie. And when he, when Henry Fonda was trying to decide if he wanted to actually be a part of Once Upon a Time in the West, it was his friend Eli Wallach who had just been a part of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly with Sergio Leone, who convinced him to take the part of Frank and told Fonda, quote, you will have the time of your life. Yeah, I'd heard that too. I, I think that's cool. I, I really like Eli Wallach. I always liked him from like The Godfather 3 and stuff like that. Sorry, I love The Godfather 3 listeners. <laughs> but yeah, I thought Eli Wallach was great in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly as well. I thought that was a neat tidbit. It's okay. I love Alien 3, so... Me too! Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a, <laughs> it's a very misunderstood film. Yeah, I like uh, it too. But one thing that I, I liked about the casting so much is that like... Kenny, you were saying there, you know, Henry Fonda wanted to look very kind of menacing, right? Yeah. And what happens is the sort of typical heroic depiction is subverted in Once Upon a Time in the West. And instead, you have these villains, these kind of seemingly villains that end up being the heroes in the movie. That's right. And I think that's fascinating. Like you said. Uh, that's one thing I thought was really neat about this movie was that uh, Sergio Leone loved westerns and he loved traditional westerns. I mean, everybody who talks to him just talks about how much he loved John Ford and all that stuff. But he also didn't like how sentimental and how, how I guess that's the word sentimental older westerns were. He wanted to to make a western that at the same time was a tribute to those, but that also completely subverted them and turned them on to, on their heads. And I, I think all of that just fits into that so well. It's a movie that's somehow simultaneously super respectful to the western tradition while totally subverting everything. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest places that you see that is through the characters of Harmonica and also Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. So originally, uh, what happens is Frank pins the murder of the McBain family on Cheyenne. And so there's a bounty for Cheyenne. And he's going to be sent to uh, Yuma. To Yuma. He's going to be sent to Yuma. He'll be on the 310 to Yuma. Yeah, it's a, it's a callback to 310 to Yuma. It's another reference. Yeah. Uh, so there's a bounty for Cheyenne. They're going to send him to Yuma. And... He ends up actually teaming up with Harmonica to take down Frank. Yeah. And even even throughout the whole movie, he, Cheyenne still kind of has this uh, almost menacing, at least at the beginning, personality. But then he kind of transforms into the lovable ruffian. Yeah. And his, yeah, it's very interesting because I felt like his musical, like all the characters in this movie have their own little musical motifs. And I always thought his was very lighthearted. So at the first of the film, I'd forgotten that he takes that sort of lighthearted turn. Uh, And so when he first showed up, I thought, man, what a weird kind of lighthearted motif for this villainous outlaw. Yeah, well, because his introduction is at this uh, kind of little stop along the way to Sweetwater. That's right. The the McBain homestead. 
and you hear this all the shooting outside and then Cheyenne walks in and he's wearing these handcuffs. Yeah. And he says something to Harmonica who's playing as Harmonica and he says something like you can play but can you shoot? Because he yeah. wants Harmonica to free him and he does and then later on there's a line I can't exactly remember what it is but I think Harm- uh, either I can't remember what it was but it was basically that line again. That's right. But this time instead of kind of appearing as though Cheyenne is threatening Harmonica, it was more kind of a, a sign of respect. That's right. And, and so I, I liked that quite a bit. Yeah, I thought it was cool. And I thought he was a very, um, a really interesting character. Honestly, maybe my favorite character in the film, <laughs> Cheyenne. Like he was just a really interesting dude. I will say I got really caught up in trying to figure out because as you said earlier, the story is so slowly revealed that I got really caught up in trying to like piece together all their, all the characters, individual motivations throughout the film. And Cheyenne was the one whose motivation I could never really nail down. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. I think it was hard to really pin down his motivation. I don't necessarily know that he had a motivation except there was kind of this weird loves triangle yeah. between Harmonica and Cheyenne and the Widow McBain. Yeah. So the only thing I can think is because he does uh, Cheyenne does mention a few different times things to Jill, uh, such as commenting that she reminds him of his own mother. Yeah. And even their meeting, uh, their first encounter and then their final encounter, again, has that repetition that you see throughout the film where he kind of barges into initially the McBain homestead and kind of is a little rough and says, well, can you make coffee? And then later on, when he sees her for the last time, uh, Cheyenne says very gently something like, can you make coffee? I know you can make coffee like well, something like that. And so I liked how it kind of flipped that initial encounter of theirs where Jill was very frightened of Cheyenne and he was very menacing towards her on his head. And then in their final encounter, she's very welcoming and he's very gentle. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think really he's a character who we see him change and evolve over the course of the movie. At first he is, as you said, not only presented in a menacing way, but he is an outlaw. He just escaped from the law and presumably killed a bunch of lawmen. And he does seem initially to be driven by greed. Like when they first find out about uh, Sweetwater and how it's built on, uh, how it's built over the water. And so that the railroad needs water to function. And so the, they know what McBain figured out was that the railroad is going to have to stop there because it's the only place to get water. So he had bought up all that land and he was going to build a town up around this place that inevitably had to be a stop on the railroad. Uh, and so when they first find out about all this, Cheyenne himself is very amazed when he finds out that money comes in millions, that he can that he could possibly make millions off this. Uh, so at first he seems very driven by um, by greed and by uh, the love of money. But then as the film goes along, he seems to grow affection for um, Jill and also a, a friendship and a bond with Harmonica uh, that kind of seems to become more of a motivating factor for him. 
Yeah, and I I do agree, even though the characters are very dynamic, with most of them, your perspective of the character is the audience member changes. But with Cheyenne, I think a big difference is that his character actually changes over the course of the film. Yeah, the others seem to almost be representative of various uh, traits, you know, uh, various tr- Western tropes to a degree. Harmonica is seeking after revenge. Frank is seeking after power. Morton wants his legacy of the railroad, and then Jill is trying is this woman with a dark past trying to kind of get a new start in the West. But Cheyenne is 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 uh, is changing throughout the film. Totally. And with that, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we will keep discussing Once Upon a Time in the West. Hey guys, we're back and we are talking about Once Upon a Time in the West. So we kind of talked a little bit earlier about the characters. And I was curious, did you have a favorite character? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first time I watched this movie, the character of Harmonica played wonderfully by Charles Bronson really stood out to me. This watch, 
it was Cheyenne for me that that really stood out. Um, I just really liked Cheyenne. I liked his arc. I liked the way that he, you know, he was a complicated character. He was an outlaw when we first meet him. He's clearly the implication is he just shot a bunch of a bunch of lawmen. I mean, you know, uh, but at the same time, he's sort of a, a lovable rogue, uh, sort of the Han Soloish personality type in this movie, and I, I just really liked him a lot. Uh, yeah, so I, I think for me, Cheyenne. How about you? I would also say Cheyenne, one hundred percent. I f- loved kind of his evolution over the course of the film, and I, I thought he was the character that changed the most. He was incredibly dynamic, and yeah, yeah I, I think he was like you put it very aptly. The kind of Han Solo, lovable ruffian. Yeah, harmonica. I I liked. Uh, a lot of things about harmonica, but one one scene in particular that kind of bothered me, and I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are. It was when he first met mm-hmm. Joe McBain. I knew where you were going, and so he he kind of roughs her up, yeah, and it gets very rapey, yeah. It, it felt super rapey, and I, I actually after that scene kind of paused it because I was like, "What the heck was that for?" And the only thing I could think. And I don't know if you have a better explanation, but he did that because he knew he was being watched by two of Frank's men and he wanted to make it look like he was roughing up McBain to kind of lull them into a false sense of security. That's that's the only thing I could think. That's a very interesting take. I I, I couldn't figure it out because he he does he does that like he kind of rips her dress a little bit and and is like super rough with her and kind of hops on top of her for a moment yeah and then leads her and makes her go out to the well and then he kind of tells her something like when you hear a weird noise get down yeah and he just kind of abruptly shifts into kind of uh, showing that he's not a threat to her. But I just I couldn't figure that scene out. That's an interesting thought, man. I never considered that. And to be honest with you, I didn't really have a good explanation like you just did for why the character would have done that inside the narrative. So that's as good an idea as I can think of. I had kind of considered that, and I had thought a lot about that scene too. Uh, and I had sort of taken a step back and considered it from uh, the filmmaking perspective a little bit, which I had two thoughts on it. One were one was that, to be honest. The character of Jill, as far as I know, I've seen most of Leone's films that he directed. The character of Jill is the first complex, fleshed out female character in a Leone movie, to my knowledge. So, you know, in a way, we could just be dealing with, you know, filmmakers who aren't really used to treating the female perspective, uh, was one thing I thought of. But the one thing that I noticed and i noticed it again today is that what harmonica does which once again it's uncomfortable because you're right there is like a rapey vibe and i and i wondered if i wondered if they were just doing that from a storytelling perspective because at that point we're still we're still trying to figure out whether or not harmonica is a good guy is he a bad guy who is this dude but one thing i noticed was that when he pins her down what he actually does is rip all the frills off of her dress he rips all the 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 lace off of her dress and I wondered if that wasn't symbolic of her leaving behind her old life. She's from New Orleans. She's from the city, from kind of a more sophisticated place in the East. And I wondered if that wasn't symbolic of her having that 
those trappings of her of her of city life torn away and now she's out here on the frontier in a much more wild place than she was before so that was the the my one perspective for having seen this film uh basically three times now that's a really interesting take and that's something i hadn't really considered too much uh she is a a at least for kind of like you said a, a sergio leone film she's a very complex uh female character yeah and i i liked her character quite a bit but yeah i just regardless of the intent behind yeah, that right. it just seemed kind of unnecessary and i almost think it was out of character for harmonica because it was really the only thing like that which occurs i would agree and, with you on that yeah i just i i thought it was kind of unnecessary and a little and out of character and i i just couldn't figure it out why that was in there so for that i think for that reason and also just because of how much more dynamic cheyenne uh was he is my is my favorite character but i will add now cheyenne's my favorite character but i think that i've always loved a good villain ever since i was a child i used to love villains and and frank is one of my favorite villains in any western that i've ever seen i just thought frank was such an interesting character he is bad through and through but he's also complicated in a way that I almost associate with like George R. R. Martin's novels like Game of Thrones and things like that. He is evil, but in a very complicated and complex way. He's not a one-dimensional character. And I, I just thought he was a really interesting and, and very well played by Henry Fonda, a villain. Agreed. He, he had a lot of nuance and the way that he was a villain wasn't just sort of acting out of self-interest, even though he was doing that most of the film. Yeah. He actually almost seemed like a sociopath yeah. the way that especially I think that's apparent uh, kind of towards the end of the film when you see Morton, the uh, as Cheyenne would say, the choo choo man, and he's kind of crawling towards the water. Yeah. And Frank's going to shoot him and then he just leaves him out in the in the desert to die. Oh yeah, he's he's cruel to the bone. I thought that Frank was interesting because Frank, the relationship between Frank and Mister Morton, who is uh, you know at least nominally his boss, who runs the railroad, they represent two distinct kinds of power, right? And they're both after power and influence. Frank's power is uh, well, I, I can't take full credit for this part, but uh, I heard one of the I heard one of the um, film scholars in the commentary track talk about how Frank is a charismatic leader, whereas Morton is, is only because of his position in society, a leader, but also they represent, um, Frank represents the power of the gun, the power of violence, whereas Morton represents the power of money. Uh, and, and I find the conflict between those two and, and Frank wants to be that Frank wants to be the kind of guy who's a leader of business and, you know, uh, is a businessman. Uh, but in the end, he's, uh, he's a gunman. He's a man who his power comes from violence. And kind of like what you were saying earlier about the way that the train motif kind of depicts this dichotomy between the old west and and progress i'm almost wondering if their relationship uh and and kind of their characters are supposed to represent another form of kind of how uh how money would ultimately replace uh guns as 
kind of the the predominant form of, of power that would kind of manifest across the United States. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that's absolutely the correct take is that that, you know, they the railroad, but also the men behind the railroad represent a new a new type of influence, a new type of power structure um, coming into the frontier, which actually brings up a question that I had written down. Do you would you consider this a political film? You know, I I think to a degree, because it definitely seemed to be anti. Uh, it seemed to be anti railroad, uh, anti monopoly kind of thing. But I don't really think it t- the film took it that much further. So I also want to say no because it, at the same time it seemed kind of self contained. Yeah. You know, it it didn't really kind of posit this uh, as there are a lot of Mortons in the world necessarily, but it didn't say that there weren't. Right. So do you, did you feel like it was political in that regard? Well, I kind of had the same take as you. I asked that question because I think it's one that's just interesting to consider, even if I don't necessarily have the answer. I, so I think spaghetti Westerns get, get, it's interesting. A lot of times when people consider can consider spaghetti Westerns, um, they talk about kind of they had more left leaning politics as compared to the right leaning politics that a lot of uh, uh, at least a lot of American Westerns seem to have back in the day. Uh, but a lot of that is from other spaghetti Western filmmakers, more people like Sergio Corbucci and um, Sergio Salima and people like that. So I think this film was political in a way because as you said I, I think it was I think it had a message about not necessarily about capitalism but about greed and about money and about the pursuit of power uh, and so to that end it had political aims but not political in a government political party that kind of thing sort of way I thought it was an interesting question because a lot of the people who in the documentaries and things talked about this movie mentioned those themes but every time that John Carpenter was on screen, well, not every time, but a lot of times he would say, no, I don't think this movie is political. Somehow John Carpenter just kept making the point that he never saw this movie through a political lens. So I just thought it was interesting that it was open to interpretation in that way. Yeah, uh, I that was something I, I thought a little bit about. It definitely had some kind of anti-capitalist sentiments. And even kind of at the at the end, what, so what ends up happening in the third act is that Cheyenne's men end up building the, the station. Yeah. Because the uh, kind of the premise is that the station had to be built on, on Sweetwater land before the train tracks reached there. Yeah. Otherwise and the, the, the train uh, was being road. constructed. Yeah. Uh, and that was why Frank ended up killing the McBain family because he was trying to kind of stop that from happening. And Morton says something like, I thought you would just frighten them off. But what ends up happening is there's sort of this kind of joyous outlook with Cheyenne's men pitching in to build the station and with Jill bringing water to all the different workers. And it's a completely different take which still kind of shows the completion of the of the railroad and, right. and progress happening, but it shows it more from kind of a uh, 
societally beneficial standpoint right. and for the greater good as opposed to like you were saying kind of for greed and self-interest yeah right and so to that degree i think that's the political message you could read into it but it's it's not so overt as possibly some other italian films of the of the same era yeah i agree i, th- I thought it was kind of more subtle but i definitely think it was apparent uh, in a lot of ways kind of progress should happen but for the common good as opposed to for greed and self-interest right yeah Uh, and so i thought that was kind of a neat little little uh, message within the film and i uh i did like how it was it was subtle because i think if you were looking you could figure it out but i don't think it was the most apparent did you have a favorite scene in the film yeah, hands down for me, it's that first, it's that opening scene. Uh, just everything about it. I mean, you know, and the pacing was so slow that I could see how people might think that scene dragged on too long, but there was just something about that building of tension in relative silence, no music, just the sounds, that squeaky windmill leading up for so long and then it, climaxing in this very fast moment of violence which is how you know realistically that sort of violence would probably happen uh i just really have always been so struck by that the imagery the sounds just i think that the first 12 minutes of this movie are a masterpiece of filmmaking it's just so great and if you get into it even more all the references the the many references to older films it's just mm, i loved it so much so yeah for me that opening scene hands down I really want to say the opening scene as well, but when we talked about favorite characters, we both said Cheyenne. Right. So I feel like we can't both say yeah. Cheyenne and the opening scene for yeah. our favorite characters <laughs> and scenes. So I'm gonna actually say the I'm gonna say the closing. Yeah. The the end of the film, because there are, are a couple of kind of significant things that occur there. One of them is we actually find out why Harmonica was on this revenge mission to kill Frank. Yeah, And it's that Frank kind of forced Harmonica to be complicit in his own brother's hanging. That's right. And actually created his downfall. Because what you see is you see Harmonica as a teenager and he's got his hands tied behind his back. And his brother is in a noose and standing on his shoulders and Frank comes in, he shoves a harmonica in harmonica's mouth and he knocks him over and you see the brother die. And so that is what ended up inspiring this revenge mission. And it's clear that since that moment, harmonica was dead set on killing Frank. He even went multiple times, I think three times throughout the film, Frank said, who are you? Yep. And Harmonica just spouted off various names of people that Frank had killed. Yeah. So it was clear that he had followed he had followed Frank for quite some time and that he was familiar with Frank's MO and he kind of knew this trail of blood that Frank left in his wake. And an interesting thing that occurred to me about that is that you just mentioned that Frank is the person who put the harmonica in in Harmonica's mouth to begin with. But I don't think that until the very end, 
that I think Frank may be the only person that had never seen Harmonica play the harmonica throughout the course of the film, and that's why he didn't put it together. And then at the very end, Harmonica breaks it out during that final confrontation. Is that right? That's that's the way I saw it. I you know I don't want to definitively say, but I think that you're correct. I believe that you're correct. I thought that was neat. The other thing is, even if Frank did see the harmonica, I don't know that he would have. Yeah, he would have recognized him partially because it seemed like it was a while ago. But then the, I think the other aspect is Frank was very callous, and I don't think he really personalized any of the people that he killed. Right. Yeah. I don't think he felt kind of any emotional response. So I'm not sure that he would have recalled that specific detail. Yeah. Makes sense. And and, and then the other thing is there's this moment where Cheyenne talks to Jill and then he leaves and you discover that he had actually been f- mortally wounded. Yeah. And so he starts riding off on a horse and then dismounts and talks to Harmonica and encourages Harmonica to kind of leave and not watch him die. But Harmonica waits and and you see Harmonica riding off into the sunset with Cheyenne strapped to his horse. Yeah. And the death of Cheyenne was apparently another scene that was cut from the original U.S. release. Uh, Apparently the U.S. release ended with those two riding off together. That's really interesting. So do you feel like the ending would have for you elicited the same emotional response? No. Yeah, nor do I. I think part of, there were a lot of things that make this movie great, but I think one of them is, is that ending, right? Because the whole time you, at least after you kind of discover that he's not this villain, you start rooting for Cheyenne and he kind of becomes, I think one of the most beloved characters in the film. And then to kind of kill him off in the last moment, especially after the triumph over over Morton and over Frank, it was just really, really a, a downer of a moment. But I, I think it was powerful and very successful in that regard. And also, it's another instance of Leone subverting the typical Western narrative, right? I mean, if our two quote-unquote heroes had just ridden off into the sunset together, that's a very classic standard western ending but instead our two quote-unquote heroes start riding off together and then one of them dies we find out he has been mortally wounded and he dies so uh, i think that's another way of subverting that ending and then another insight i'll throw in that i can't claim credit for it was part of the uh the documentaries was that it's a it's yet again another symbol of the passing away of the old west right cheyenne the outlaw the gunman dies and then we see a clip of the railroad being built yet again right and then even though harmonica survives his mission is is pretty much done that's right what what is his what is his purpose so yeah i think i think the two of them riding off uh harmonica with cheyenne's corpse is like you said very symbolic of kind of the old west dying off right yeah, Cheyenne is quite literally dead, and Harmonica. Who knows what he's going to do now that he doesn't need to chase Frank around and and try to kill him. So yeah, I think the it's... kind of stereotypical cowboy, uh, you know, the gunslinger, had in the film has departed. Yep, I think so too. 
uh, so what uh, we talked we've talked a lot about the score yeah and i'm curious what are your favorite morricone soundtracks you know like I don't know that I could make a top five list or anything, really, but just thinking about some of his work, I mean, his music is is the sound of spaghetti westerns, right? I mean, it it is so clearly defined by Marcone's music that when I watch something like a uh, like a Fulci spaghetti western, which granted those came several years later anyway, but uh, Fabio Fritzi was involved in making the music for some of those, but it just seems a little strange having non Morricone music behind a spaghetti Western. I got to say for me, my favorite Morricone score is probably it's pretty close between the good, the bad and the ugly and the big gun down. I think I'm going to give it to the good, the bad and the ugly slightly only because of how much I love the track, the ecstasy of gold. I just think that that track is so beautiful and amazing, but right under that, I'm going to throw it to, um, I'm going to throw it to uh, the big gun down, which is another really great um, score. After that, I'm probably going to give it to a fistful of dollars and this is where I, I say I have a hard time coming up with a top five list, but I definitely also want to include um, his scores to things like uh, the Burb of the Crystal Plumage and Cat of Nine Tales. Uh, particularly Cat of Nine Tales, I really like his um, his music in that movie a lot. The, the theme for that movie uh, gets in my head a lot from Argento's Cat of Nine Tales. But for me, I think my top three are going to be uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, The Big Gun Down, and um, Fistful of Dollars. I mean, I feel like it's difficult to, like you said, pick even probably 10 favorite soundtracks because he was just so prolific. Yeah. Uh, but And I don't think he had a bad soundtrack. Right. If I had to pick a top three, I would probably go with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah. It's, just, it, it's iconic, and there is a reason that it's iconic. Yep. Uh, I would also put Once Upon a Time in the West up there. Yeah. And I would go with The Thing. Okay, I wondered if you were going to, because I, after I finished mine, I, I was like, you know what? I totally left out The Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, so, you again, like uh, we we talked a little bit about this earlier, but he had this very signature footprint. So you could recognize when something was composed by Morricone. But he was still able to make his soundtracks pretty distinct. And I think the thing is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell it's a Morricone production, but it also has kind of a different flair to it. And granted, uh, I think part of that was John Carpenter's influence, but I think I do attribute, uh, I think a good portion of that to just Ennio Morricone being very inventive and, and you can see that even with things like Once Upon a Time in the West with a soundtrack that is very avant-garde. Sure, it's definitely it definitely had the Western vibe to it. It had that aesthetic, yeah. but it also had a lot of unusual moments in it. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I also recall, and I haven't seen this one in a while, but I did like his soundtrack for the movie The Mission. Oh, I've not seen that. That was a pretty good one. Uh, that was quite a good film, actually, if I recall correctly. 
Uh, but I just uh, anything that he touched was kind of pure gold. Yeah, and you know another interesting thing. Now that you've mentioned the thing, it brought this to my mind. Uh, that you know we kind of it's always hard for me to track down exactly the story behind it. But we also have this Morricone score to Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Uh, you know, apparently the theme, a lot of the theme music uh, from that was, uh, I get mixed reports depending on what I read, but apparently Tarantino used, um, you know, some unused themes from The Thing to then score The Hateful Eight. And I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong about this, but I think that Morricone also uh, contributed some new pieces to the Hateful Eight as well, but you get a lot of Morricone's music uh, behind the Hateful Eight, which is very interesting because the Hateful Eight is a, a western and is obviously not a spaghetti western, but it's very influenced by that whole thing. Uh, particularly, it's influenced by Corbucci's The Great Silence. But um, but you get this really menacing and almost horror sounding score behind the Hateful Eight that adds this really different atmosphere. So once again, another instance of Morricone just really creating the atmosphere of a movie with his music. And one that neither of us mentioned that I think Morricone did a good job with was the soundtrack for The Untouchables. Oh, right. Yeah. See, he he did so many things that it's hard to even keep them all in your brain. Yeah, I, I, I think it's incredibly difficult to remember his entire uh, discography. It was just so wide ranging. But I do think when people think of Morricone, they tend to think the good, the bad and the ugly. And there was actually, okay. I think it, I, I want to say it was like a Washington post uh, headline or something like that. After uh, Morricone passed away that said uh, like famous film composer, Ennio Morricone renowned for his ooey 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 yeah soundtrack right. passes wah, away wah, wah. <laughs> and i was just like oh no <laughs> you know what as as strange as that headline sounded i'm oh, pretty yeah. sure everyone who read that knew exactly what it was what it was saying i knew wow 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 before i'd ever seen any leone movies before i'd ever heard a morricone soundtrack it's just one of those things that's in our culture yeah no totally people who have not seen the movie still get the reference Uh, and i think that speaks volumes about Ennio morricone as a composer that uh, you know the soundtrack is arguably more famous than the film itself and the film is ridiculously yeah. yes. renowned wonderful as, as a western and as a piece of cinema history yeah and you know it's funny he he was just so influential behind italian cinema that when i referenced uh corbucci's the great silence a moment ago i remembered that morricone also did the score for that so he, he just did so many different scores yeah i, I mean i feel like if you just start throwing out random movies yeah. chances are that I don't know. One out of five is going to be a, a Morricone soundtrack. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, another thing while we're talking about the score for this film, uh, the score for Once Upon a Time in the West was written to Sergio Leone's specifications before filming ever began. So I just think that's really interesting. Um, you, you have this score that was written to the director's specifications before filming even started. And so then filming was 
conducted in such a way to match up with a pre-existing score. The score was played on set while they were filming in a lot of instances. And you have this one scene that's a very famous shot where Jill first gets off the train. She's expecting the McVeigh family to meet her, and obviously they don't because they've been murdered. So she's there. She's trying to kind of find her bearings, and she goes into the train station, and the train kind of directs her to this wagon that this, this thing going to take her over to Sweetwater. But the camera pans up from the train station and you see this wide shot of the Old West town that had been built there. Uh, And you see this wide shot. And as the camera pans up, the music flows perfectly with the shot. And it was sequenced that way intentionally. And it's just such a wonderful marriage of image and music. And it's kind of interesting about how the... Uh, music was written for this because it just feels so natural in there. And it's hard actually to imagine once upon a time in the West without the music. Yes. The cinematography was phenomenal. The characters are very intriguing and, and very kind of dynamic in a lot of ways, but I don't think this movie would quite be as good if it weren't for the pairing of the audio and the visuals. It's the heartbeat of the movie. I mean, you know, it's just, it's at its core. Yeah. And it tells you, it kind of, and all scores do, uh, film scores do this to a degree, but uh, it tells you kind of what to feel as a viewer. But I feel like this one, it's even stronger. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, And it was also just very unusual, even kind of like we discussed the opening sequence where it incorporates kind of sounds from the uh, train station and uh, the way the harmonica is actually worked into the plot of the film. So yeah, I I think it's a marvelous, uh, I think it's a marvelous soundtrack. Yeah. Real accomplishment. So so with that, why don't we rate this movie? Okay. Am I going first? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I actually messaged you earlier this week, uh, full confession, just to be like, man, I am terrible at rating movies. I just want to rate them all five stars if I love them, but I, I don't want to do that. Uh, so I will admit, you know, when I when I first saw this movie, um, the pacing was something that kind of turned me off a little bit. Granted, I was much younger then, uh, and even now, I mean, like we said earlier, it's deliberately slow to a point where sometimes you think maybe it could be tightened up a little bit. Then again, apparently Paramount thought that for the U.S. release and they were wrong. Uh, but the pacing is a little weird. There are places when the the narrative is, is structured a little strangely. Um, so admitting those very few flaws, but then also considering the great characterization, the gr- wonderful cinematography, all the attention to detail that went into this movie, all the references to old westerns that were both done as tribute, but also to turn them on their head. I just think this is a brilliant piece of artwork. Um, and to me, I am going to take all that in consideration and, and rate this movie 4.5 out of 5. I think a lot of that praise is very uh is very due for this film i kind of so i i love a lot of this film i actually think it has a ton of replay value uh it's one that i think i could watch again pretty regularly and still enjoy just because 
there and you touched on this in your review just now but there's just so much that's deliberate about this and while it is a western at its core and, and very distinctly western it also kind of subverts a lot of the tropes uh, of the genre and provides a lot to think about and while the kind of surface level plot is very uh, uh predictable in in some ways uh there's a lot that isn't as apparent and there are some little kind of nuggets in there to think about uh like the theme of kind of progress throughout the movie and and throughout society and kind of that juxtaposition between uh, progress for the common good versus out of self-interest and greed and there's some really cool characters i thought it was just a very beautiful film to watch as well both the the facial close-ups and the kind of wide panning shots and you have a very concrete sense of the characters and the place but i did feel like the i felt like the narrative could have been tightened up a bit uh, i i loved the fact that it was slow but the way that the narrative was told i felt like made it a very simple plot overly complex um and also i just that one that one scene can with harmonica can get a little rapey with with jill just it felt just really out of place so i felt like that could have been cut so i'm gonna give this one a 3.5 i think that's fair that's fair but Um, it's weird because i don't think my score quite shows how much i enjoy this movie i think it's a very fun film yeah uh i do think it's very thought-provoking but I just it felt like it could have been tweaked a little bit. And one that I actually kept comparing it to a little bit was Tombstone. Yeah, I could see that. And th- that is a film that I absolutely love. Uh, I think there is more action in, in Tombstone than there is in Once Upon a Time in the West. But I don't think that's why I, I kind of prefer that. It just it felt like the narrative was told better than it, it was relayed better than it was in Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, and because, yeah. and, you know, I think they, they're they both pretty long. I can't remember the, the runtime for Tombstone, but that's another one of those epic ones. Um, so, yeah, I, just, I feel like the narrative could have been tightened up and relayed to the audience a little bit better. I would agree. And and for my personal tastes, I, I probably could have used a little more action, to be honest. I, I really like <laughs> action. And so, yeah, for me personally, I probably could have used a little more action, which is why I think, you know, I would probably rank a good, the bad and the ugly a little over um uh, over this film as well things like that um just a little more you know uh i did want to say though while we're talking about the impact of this film you know this comes in the late 60s it came at a time um when the american western had uh, at least for the time all, all but run its course there was a time when the western was the predominant narrative in american entertainment and by the time the 60s rolled around, it had pretty much run its course. It was all over television, and it was just kind of starting to get played out. So you hear a lot of people talk about how one exciting thing about Sergio Leone is he kind of brought the Western back. Like, he showed people that they could do new things with it. And so um, I wrote a quote down that Bernardo Bertolucci, who was one of three people who wrote the story for this movie, uh, said about Leone, and he said, I think he gave back to the proper Western makers, I mean directors from the USA, the confidence that a Western can be a great movie. He gave back something that had gone lost. And I just thought that was a really cool 
uh, way to think about Leone's contributions to the Western genre. And I think, honestly, Westerns after this time period, including things like Tombstone, probably owe a lot of their feel to to Leone and the way that he showed us how to take a Western and do something different with it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that is one of the, and I had that thought while I was watching What's Upon a Time in the West, but uh, I was thinking, you know, I bet this is something that did influence stuff like Tombstone. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, kind of what you just said there seemed almost like a parallel for kind of what happens in in the film about kind of that uh the progress and kind of phasing out the the west but also kind of bringing it back in a way through westerns yeah uh and another little bit of trivia that i wanted to throw in i feel like i always find little bits that i can't make happen during the main part of the conversation but just throwing it back to our uh deep red episode from earlier this year uh the three people in question who wrote the initial story that this movie is based on were sergio leone Bernardo Bertolucci and a young Dario Argento. So I just thought that was kind of a neat connection that he was involved in writing the story for this movie. That is a pretty powerful trio right there. Oh yeah. Apparently they just locked themselves in a room and watched so many Westerns to get inspiration and get themselves in the right frame of mind uh, for this movie. And it really shows. Yeah. Uh, This is just, it's a pretty film to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's worth watching just for the visuals. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot more in here than just the visuals as well. Yeah. So that is our show for the night. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't already done so, head over, to, head over to iTunes and leave us rating, leave us a review, and go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast aggregator. You can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram, as well as read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And you can read my writing on tech at techuplife.com. Yeah, and so close not here. This is Wes Clifton once again. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, you can find my fiction writing at my website, wdclifton.wordpress.com. I'll throw out here at the very end that this month, July, uh, my first published Western short story, To Cheat the Hangman, uh, came out in the July episode, uh, or sorry, the July issue of Frontier Tales. So you can go to frontiertales.com. Uh, it's a free publication on their website, so you can read my story as well as all the other stories in the July issue uh, at frontiertales.com. And remember, be kind, rewind. Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.